Well, today we're starting a new series. Uh, it's a series that actually we've been doing for a while. So it's kind of uh, coming back to a series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, last spring, I think it was the last time that we were there, and we had made our way up to chapter 12. And so now we're going to be in chapters 13 to 17, and it's going to take us all the way through the summer. Uh, you can see the title of it, Things Jesus Said, Parables, Stories, and Teachings from Jesus. And the reason we called it that, Things Jesus Said, is because that's kind of what Jesus did most of the time. He said things. When he wasn't doing miracles, when he wasn't healing people, he was saying something to someone uh, to help them spiritually, to help them gain spiritual knowledge or grow in some spiritual way. In fact, if you look through the, the Gospels, you see that it wasn't just his, his miracles and his healings that would draw people to Jesus. Uh, a lot of the time, it was the things he was saying and how he was saying them. Uh, the word that's used over and over again when it comes to the things that Jesus said was that people were astonished. So here, look at these verses. Luke 4.32, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Matthew 22.33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. In Mark 6.2, many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? So there was a real enthusiasm for the, the words that Jesus spoke, but it wasn't always a positive enthusiasm. Uh, there were a lot of times when Jesus was saying things and people were angry, people were provoked, people were confused. Uh, here's one example from John 6. Here Jesus is telling people that for them to have eternal life, they needed to feast on him, like feast on his flesh. And here is the response. Uh, John 6, 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And that was often the response from the things that Jesus said. People were perplexed. People were confused. Uh, sometimes they were just provoked and convicted. But see, that didn't bother Jesus. Uh, Jesus always said what was true. And he always said the things that would be most helpful for people if they would actually listen. And actually take it to heart. In fact, that's one of the markers of true love. The way that we know that Jesus came in love is that he would speak the truth. That's how you know that you have someone in your life that loves you is they're willing to speak the truth. Not, um, not like truth grenades, you know, launched from a distance that detonated our lives and from people who are far away from us relationally. Real um, real love is people who are in close relationship with us and know us well enough to speak truth, to, to help us to understand the things that are true about us and the things that are true about God so that we would, we would grow spiritually. But the, the truth is that this is a challenge for us. I mean, I mean, to actually hear those true things and receive them well. Uh, one of the markers of sinful humanity is that we like to hear the things that we already know and that we already agree with. Like that, that's what we want someone to speak into our lives. All the things that I, I see clearly, uh, in fact, Paul speaks about this uh, to Timothy. In, in his letter, 2 Timothy, he writes this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then Paul, Paul goes on to say to those who preach, you need to, 
need to preach the, the word of God fully and faithfully because there's all these things that we need to hear. We're not supposed to just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to listen to. Uh, we, we should be interested in hearing all of it. And I bring this up by way of introduction because as chapter 13 begins uh, in the book of Luke, Jesus is right in the middle of some hard teaching. Um, chapter 12 ended by Jesus calling the people out for being inconsistent. So here's, here's what Jesus said uh, in chapter 12. This is Luke 12, 56. He said, You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? We, we touched on this last spring. This is the last uh, passage that we looked at. You can see that Jesus is a crowd of people, and he's really calling them out. He's basically saying to them, look, you're great at predicting the weather. You're great at figuring like the signs in the sky, the patterns sort of around you, but you're horrible at discerning the spiritual patterns in your life. And he's basically saying to them, you're not, you're not taking your faith seriously. You're not taking the spiritual things, the deep, truly meaningful things seriously in your life. That was the end of chapter 12. So you can imagine the people there, it's the same people now, chapter 13, uh, they were beginning to feel a sense of conviction. I mean, Jesus was calling them out, speaking very kind of firmly into their lives that you're not taking your spiritual walk seriously. And they began probably to feel a sense of conviction. And so they, what we're going to see here in our passage is they try to deflect these words from Jesus. They, they try to find comfort for their souls because they're, they're feeling weighted down by their own sin, but they do it in ways that are not ultimately helpful. In fact, we're going to see two wrong ways that the people here try to find comfort for their soul, and then Jesus is going to point them to the true comfort. So let's look here. The first, there's two sections. Here's verses one to five. And you can see the people, they're going to bring up some, some events that have happened recently. And I'll, we'll explain what they mean in a moment. But here they are. Uh, this is verses one to five, Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's, here's the first sense of false comfort that they're finding. I'll put it this way. Uh, point number one, there is no comfort in comparison. There is no comfort in comparison. See, what the crowd is doing here, they bring up this, uh, this deal with the Galileans. It's really a horrible atrocity that, that actually happened. Uh, but during Passover, you know, all the Jews would flood into Jerusalem. And so uh, the Jews from Galilee would come in, the Galilean Jews. And the thing about the Galilean Jews at the time is that they had very strong political views. They were, they were always criticizing Rome or speaking out against the oppressive uh, Roman rule. And so what happened is that as they came into the temple and they were participating in the Passover sacrifices, Pilate, the Roman governor, he sent some soldiers in to kill them, just to, to take them out. And so when he killed them, their blood mingled with the animal blood, and that's why 
the crowd was saying to Jesus, hey, these Galileans, that Pilate, you mixed their, their blood. So this was something that everyone knew about. Obviously, people would have heard about this. It was a horrible thing. Another example of Roman brutality. But the question is, why, why were the people saying this? Why were they telling Jesus about this horrible thing that happened to these Galileans? Well, in the ancient world, people had this idea. We still have it sometimes today. But they had this idea that if something bad happened to you, it was because you were sinful. That there's a connection. If something horrible happened to you, it's because God was angry with you. Uh, you were full of sin. You see this in the Bible. For example, in Job, right? Horrible. I mean, Job had a lot of hard things happen to him. And his so-called friends came, and this was the counsel they gave. Uh, Job 4, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So the friends of Job are basically saying, look, Job, here's how it works, right? If you, if you sow iniquity, then that's going to happen to you. So clearly, you must have done something wrong. That was their counsel. That's why all these bad things are happening to you. And we see the same thinking in the New Testament. Uh, remember that time Jesus and disciples were walking and there's a, a, someone who's blind uh, begging on the road and here's the question they ask, John 9, 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So they assumed if something horrible, a tragedy has happened to this person, it's because of his sin or his parents. Someone sinned if something bad has happened. And so that's what the crowd is thinking. They're, they're, they're hearing Jesus say to them, look, you guys, you guys need to deal with your sin, right? You're hypocrites. You need to attend your spiritual matters. They're starting to feel a bit of conviction. And so they try to find comfort by bringing up some other people who seem way worse than them. The implication here for this crowd is, hey, Jesus, at least we're not as bad as them. Right? Those Galileans, I mean, they must have been horrible. Look what God let happen to them. They were killed. I mean, we're, they're way more sinful than we are. Right, Jesus? That's, that's the mindset that they have. And I think it's a mindset that we, we uh, identify with, isn't it? I mean, don't we do this naturally, like in our sin? Certainly as kids, we do this, right? When our brother or sister get in trouble, right? We feel so much better about ourselves for some reason, right? Sometimes we point it out. You know, mom, I would never lie to you that way. I don't know what's wrong with him. I don't understand. We, we always kind of look to, to other people. There's something twisted in our hearts. Somehow we, we think we look better when other people look worse. So when we begin to feel the conviction of sin, like when there's someone in our life pointing out something about us, some, some pattern of sin, some wrong behavior or wrong words, especially if there's someone close to us, what's our response a lot of the time? We deflect, right? We say, well, what about you? What about you? I happen to have a list of horrible things that you've done. Let me bring, let me tell you about them because we don't want to feel that conviction. Somehow we think that our sin is lessened by pointing out the sin of other people. And so we try to comfort ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. But Jesus makes it clear this, this doesn't work. This never works. Because when it comes to sin, we are all in the same boat. So look again at his response in verse 2. He says to them, Look, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's like, do, 
Do you really think there's a connection that somehow they were worse? That's why God allowed it to happen. And then to make his point even clearer, he shifts to another recent tragedy. This is the deal with the tower, right? He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So this was another event that everyone knew about. They were building a tower in Siloam. It collapsed. It crushed a bunch of people. But the difference between this event and the Galileans is that if you get crushed by a tower, probably it wasn't your fault, uh, unless you were the one building the tower, I guess. Uh, But for the Galileans, some people might have thought, look, they brought it on themselves. They were criticizing Rome. They were making trouble. And so they got got killed. That's what happens when when you poke the bear. But for the people being crushed by the tower of Siloam, that that wasn't their fault. I mean, they were just walking by and this tower fell. And so look at verse four. Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So Jesus is correcting a couple of, of misunderstandings that the people have. First, first, he's making clear there is not a direct connection in this life between the bad things that happen to us and the sin in our hearts. And this is important to understand because we sometimes think this still, right? We sometimes think to ourselves, oh, this, this must have happened because I did something wrong or God's angry with me. Okay, in this life, God is not balancing the scales of justice, right? There are bad things that happen to good people and good things that happen to bad people. You, you can't look at someone's life and necessarily see the sin level or the righteousness of their heart. That comes on the day of judgment. Okay, there will be justice, but in this life, especially as believers, God is not punishing us. That that was all taken care of on the cross. The second misunderstanding is is what I just mentioned, that comparing ourselves to others will not bring peace to our soul because we are all justly, justly condemned for our sin. Now, of course, it's true that some people have uh, more sin in their lives. Some people have greater wickedness in their lives, but the end result is the same. Eternal death, right? Eternal judgment, spiritual death, We will perish because of our sin if we do not have the forgiveness of God. Regardless of the bad people around us, regardless of the fact that there are worse people all around us, that doesn't actually bring comfort, spiritual comfort to our soul. And so to take this to heart, it means that we should should probably stop thinking uh, in certain ways. Like we should stop feeling better about ourselves just because there's someone at work who is way worse than us. Do you have that habit where you, you know there's someone in your life, as soon as you begin to feel bad about yourselves, you think, well, at least I'm not as bad as Gerald or whatever his name is, right? On the street in our neighborhood sometimes, right? The, the, the neighbor that everyone hates, has loud parties, always leaves their, their garbage cans out. We drive by feeling superior. We never do that. We wouldn't do that. We, we find comfort, encouragement from our, for our soul because of the way that other people act. We need to stop doing that. Because there is no real comfort there. Jesus says the only way that we are going to feel really at peace, like being able to breathe, feeling a sense of of rightness in our lives, is by becoming right with God through repentance. And so he says says it twice, right? Verses 3 and 5 says the same thing. Unless you repent, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then again in verse five, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why? Because in repentance, we are, we are identifying our sin for what it is and we're seeing Jesus for who he is. 
And so we're actually being reconciled with God, receiving the righteousness of Christ because of the spiritual work that is done in us. This is the point that Jesus is making. And to emphasize this point, he tells a parable. This will be the next section of our text. He tells a parable about a tree. And in this parable, he uh, debunks another false sense of comfort and then points us again to this true comfort of repentance. So I'm going to give you the false comfort again on the front end before we read the parable. Here it is. Point number two. There is no comfort in barren peacefulness. Barren peacefulness. You're going to see that, uh, that word, that idea here in the parable. Okay? Barren peacefulness. So here's, here's what he says. Verse 6. And he told a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So clearly this is a call to a life of fruitfulness, right? That's the problem with this tree. But what I want us to do is think for a moment about what life was like for that tree from the tree's point of view. So just think about it. You're a fig tree in this garden. You have borne no fruit, okay? It's, it's barren. Your, your leaves, uh, I guess, are there, but there's no fruit. So there's no productivity. There's no signs of life. But, but your life has been pretty peaceful as a tree. I mean, you're in this vineyard. It, it, you're well-tended, right? You're protected from mites and whatever else might harm you. You've had a very peaceful existence for these three years. And so my question is, what would you be thinking as that tree? Would you be worried about your future? Would you be concerned about your lack of fruitfulness? I think probably not. The tree was probably thinking, everything's fine. Everything's great. I love living in this garden. The fact that I have not produced any fruit doesn't bother me because no one's mentioned it. They just keep watering me. They keep tending to me. Right? Everything's great. I'm going to just keep living my barren existence and it's going to be great. But of course, if that's what the tree was thinking, you would be totally wrong. Because it was just a matter of time before the, the vineyard owner came and cut down the tree because of its lack of fruit. And you see why I'm pointing this out. Because there are some of us in the church that are making the same kind of mistake that we are living lives of barren peacefulness and we think everything's fine. I mean, we're, we're going about our lives, right? We're, we're working our jobs. We're, we're doing life. We're even doing some Christian things because we consider ourselves to be a Christian, but there's no real fruit in our lives. And by that, I mean that there's no evidence that we have actually turned from the things of this world that have begun to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. If you think even of the fruit of the Spirit, from Galatians 5, right? All those things that the Holy Spirit is seeking to, to grow in the life of every Christian, right? Love, joy, peace, peace, not peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things aren't really growing in our life, but we're at peace. 
and we feel fine. No one, no one seems to have noticed or is hassling us about the fact that we aren't really taking any steps of faith. We aren't really seeking to sacrifice for Jesus. I mean, we're living a life of peace and we're part of the church and everything seems to be fine. Why wouldn't we just think that things are gonna keep going this way? Why would we be concerned about what the spirit of God might wanna do in our lives? And the answer is what we find here in this parable. That if we're thinking this way, we're seeing things all wrong. Because it's just a matter of time before we are judged for who we really are, which is a barren and dead tree that will perish because of our sins. Now, now let's be clear here. This is not a call to salvation by works. Jesus isn't, isn't saying here that we need to clean, clean ourselves up, really try hard, right? Become more get better at self-control, better at love, and then come and then, and then find peace with God. That's not what he's saying. This is a call for us to understand that the Christian life is one of genuine repentance, like, like a pattern of repentance in our life. Repentance means seeing our sin clearly, seeing it for the poison that it is. It's gonna, it's gonna kill us. It's slowly seeping in every part of our lives will surely end in death, but then we see Jesus for who he is. He's the one who who drank the poison for us down to the last drop and then gifted us his own righteousness so that now we are new creations. And that means that we live a life as a new creation, that there's actually new regenerate spiritual life within us that is gonna be um, evidenced in our life, that people are gonna look at us and see, man, there's something different about them. Like the way they spend their time and money and energy, it's it's just different. It seems, especially if they knew us before, it seems like there's a new trajectory in life. That's what repentance is and what it looks like. It's not just a, a one-time thing where we say sorry for our sins, where we pray, Jesus, I, I want to be a Christian, and then nothing changes. In fact, there's some really clear pictures in the Bible of what a life of repentance looks like, what a genuine Christian life looks like. Here's one in Colossians 1, 10 to 14. It says this, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That is a life of great comfort, amen? Like that is a life where our soul feels at peace, where where we know what our life is about, where even when there's adversity and trial, we know the direction we're going and we're striving to grow in, in the light rather than in the darkness. And it all It all comes from a pattern of repentance. So the question that we should be asking ourselves in light of this text is, is firstly, have we done that? Are are you a person of faith that has, for that moment, said, Jesus, I see my sin. I, I, I see that it leads to death. I need you. That is the point where we come to faith. But then, are we living a life of repentance? Because if not, there's, there's not hope for us. So here's our third point. 
what we see really clearly here. Our, our only true comfort is repentance, is, is the fact that we are right with God because of the work of Jesus on the cross and that newness is actually growing in us and that we are, we are bearing fruit by the power of God, not in our own efforts, but that people can see it. So I want to show you uh, how Jesus is working in our lives to bring this about, because this is the encouragement of this text. It's not just Jesus throwing a, a grenade of truth and saying, you got to fix your life. What he's actually going to show us is that he's at work in our lives, growing us in this way. So we're going to look back at the parable one more time, but this time I want, I want to look at the deeper meaning of the symbolism in the parable, because that's what parables are, right? Earthly stories, heavenly meaning, and there's three players here. There's the fig tree, which is often a symbol for Israel, so the people of God, so that's us now. There's the man or the owner uh, of the field, that's God the Father. And you notice there, uh, then the parable, he, he really speaks to the justice that is required in this situation, right? He's saying, look, in the kingdom of God, trees and people should bear fruit. And if they don't, then there is going to be justice because all barrenness must be judged. But the vine dresser, the vine dresser is Jesus, and you notice there that he intervenes on behalf of the tree. He argues for mercy. He argues that the tree be given time to bear fruit. His logic is one of grace. But what I want us to see there is that he doesn't just want time for time's sake. He doesn't just say, well, let's try another year. Maybe, maybe things will get better. No, he actually... He actually talks about the activity that he will do in the life of the tree to bring about greater fruitfulness. And so I want to look at these two things that the vine dresser will do to the tree because they are symbolic of what Jesus does in our lives. So the first thing he says he will do is to dig around it, right? He's going to dig around the tree. Uh, this has led people over the years to say, you know what probably is the problem with this tree is that it's root bound or earth bound. Here's a picture of a of kind of a root-bound tree, um, what happens, you, often when trees are in pots, this happens, but even when they're growing kind of in the wild, the roots can get wrapped around the tree itself rather than spreading out into wherever the water is. I don't know how that works, but that's the good thing. They wrap around themselves and that hinders the growth of the tree. And apparently, I did some research, this is very hard to fix, apparently. Uh, in fact, the, the only way really to do it is to cut the, the roots themselves, to slice down so that hopefully they, re, they regrow in healthier patterns. And this actually is what the vine dresser is going to do. The vine dresser said he was going to take a shovel. He's going to dig around the edges of the tree, severing the roots right with a sharp shovel so that the roots can grow in a healthy way. And, and the thing that we need to see for us is that this is symbolic of our own hearts that our own hearts can be earthbound. I think that's a good word. Meaning we can be wrapped up in ourselves and in the things of this world to the point that we are barren spiritually. That we aren't growing in the way that God would want us to. And so the most helpful thing that Jesus can do for us is to dig sharply at the roots of our hearts. To, to agitate us, to, to spur on healthy root growth so that we won't find our our source of vitality in the things of this world, but it'll actually be in Jesus himself, in the spirit of God. I want to read to you a, a quote from John Bunyan. 
famous Puritan. He was doing a sermon on this passage, and he imagines what Jesus would be saying to God the Father about this tree, about this, this person. And so you can just listen. He, he says it this way, Lord, Lord, I will loosen his roots. I will dig up this earth. I will lay his roots bare. My hand shall be upon him by sickness, by disappointment, by cross providences. I will dig about him until he stands shaking and tottering until he be ready to fall. See, the activity of Christ, what John Bunyan is saying, is is going to be harsh at times. He's going to dig at us. He's going to hack away at our root system to the point that we feel like we're going to fall over. And, and the question, why? Jesus, why does it feel so uncomfortable when you were at work in my life? And the answer is because sometimes it's the only way to loosen the roots of our hearts. Roots that are bound up in the things of this world. Seemingly good things. Right? Like, our, like our physical health like our finances, our, our appearance, the, the circumstances of our lives, all those things that we put so much time and energy into and seem to, to bring us life that are actually entangling us in things that will lead to our death. The most loving thing that Jesus can do is to dig at us, to agitate our hearts through life's trials so that he can pry our fingers off of the earthly attachments that we have so that we might be fruitful in him See, it's good to know that this is part of the way that Jesus cultivates us. Because I think we spend a lot of time questioning the trials in our lives. Wondering why it would be that God would allow these kinds of things. Thinking to ourselves, why, is it, why does it hurt so much? We rarely stop to think about what good God might be doing. What it is that Jesus is trying to teach us in those moments, it's his mercy that he hacks away at our root system and leaves us shaken because he wants for us to find true nourishment, the source of true life in him, and to regrow our roots so that we would have eternal life, so that we would have a vitality that will endure past the grave. So the lesson for us here is perhaps for you today, if you have felt this sharp digging of God, like if if you felt agitated, felt uh, cut and sliced into in a sense. We shouldn't resist that. We shouldn't become hard-hearted about it. We should embrace it. We should recognize that, that Jesus is doing his good work to spur on greater fruitfulness and greater growth. And we should understand that to resist that kind of work of God is only to remain barren, which leads to death. Now, the second thing, the second thing that Jesus says he will do, or that the vine dresser says he will do to this tree, is to put on manure. Uh, you might know that this is the season for manure. I did three loads of it last week. It was great. Compost, manure, all over our garden. Uh, you know it's manure uh, season because you can smell it, right, in the neighborhood. You go by this yard and that yard, it just smells rank because, in case you weren't clear, manure is poop, right? We know that, right? It's animal poop that smells horrible and yet is full of nutrients. Uh, There was a time in world history, uh, interestingly, where uh, people were very excited about a certain kind of poop. Uh, It was bird poop. 
See, in the 1800s, uh, this you'll find fascinating. I'm not sure if it's spiritually edifying, but it's, <laughs> I think it'll be interesting. Uh, in the 1800s, uh, the European explorers realized that in Peru, the Peruvian farmers, they would go out to these uh, rock islands nearby and they would take all the bird poop off of the island and they would go and spread it on their farm and things would grow like crazy. And so they brought this stuff back to Europe and they analyzed it and uh, the chemists at the time uh, found that it was full of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all the things these days that synthetic fertilizers are made from. So all of a sudden, uh, they, they called this stuff guano. And so guano mania took hold in Europe and the United States, and uh, they would go to these islands, and they would harvest it, and they would sell it. This is some of the advertisements for it. Guano, this, and it really would, it was amazing. All of a sudden, their crops were growing, and you have to understand, some of these islands, birds had been pooping there for centuries. So here's some of the pictures. They were like hundred, that's a mountain of guano, mountain of bird poop that they would mine, they would load it on ships, they would bring it back to, to the US, to Europe, they would put it on their fields. Everyone thought this was amazing because the yield was incredible. Because that's what fertilizer does. All of a sudden, they were you know, twice, twofold, threefold, fruit was growing. That's the benefit of fertilizer. That's why we use it to this day. That's what Jesus is saying he's gonna do for this tree. He's gonna take fertilizer, manure, nutrient-rich manure, put it on this tree so that it will grow. And so the question, of course, for us is, what is this fertilizer? If this is symbolic of something that Jesus is doing in our lives to make us more fruitful, what is it? And the answer can only be two things. The Spirit of God and the Word of God, of course. These are the things that reinvigorate our life with nourishment from God, that, that, that allow the truths of the gospel to seep into the deep recesses of our heart so that we can actually grow. But it only works if we apply it. If you were a farmer with a big truckload of guano beside your house, but you weren't putting it on your fields, people would say, what are you, what are you doing? That, that's the whole point. This will make you grow. Why wouldn't you put it on your field? And yet there are many of us who own a Bible believe in the Holy Spirit, but we don't really seek to apply it in a way that, that we actually believe that it's life for us. We don't actually put the time and energy praying, Lord Jesus, I, I need you. I see the barrenness of my life. I hear people speaking into my life. There's conflict. There, there's, there's trial. There's clearly areas where I need to grow, but I'm, I'm just not growing. Please, Lord Jesus, please, through your word, through your spirit, help me to grow. Without you, I, I will remain fruitless. There is great nutrients that God has for us, spiritual nutrients that will help us to grow. But we need to apply it to our lives. See, barrenness... Barrenness leads to death for a tree because actually the tree is already dead. I mean, you know those trees where year after year, they're there, they're in the ground, they're, I guess, sort of seemingly alive, but there's no, there's no fruit, there's no life. Eventually, we cut those trees down because they're already dead. And the same is true for us. Right? If, there's no, if there's no fruitfulness in our lives, if we allow sin just to be present in our life and we're not convicted about it? If there's clearly areas in our character that we need to grow and we're not bothered by it and we just are resting on the fact that there's other people that are worse than us or the fact that there's peace in our life, then we're totally missing the warnings of God. 
and we're missing all the life that, that God would have for us. It's just a matter of time before we experience the death that is in us fully. Our only comfort, our true comfort, is in repentance. Genuine repentance, a life of repentance. We need to respond to the conviction of the Spirit. We need to welcome the work that Jesus is doing in our lives. So this is, this is the call for us. To, to, for the moment, for today, examine our lives and ask ourselves, are there areas of barrenness? Like, like as we are quiet before the Lord or as we are asking people in our lives, is there areas of, of sin that we're not attending to? Is there any actual real fruit in our lives? Or are we just making excuses? What would genuine repentance look like in your life as a lifestyle? See, Jesus says it twice. Look at verses three and five again. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's speaking to someone who is not a person of faith. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, this is God's warning to you. Out of love, you need to turn from your sin. See that that's only leading to death. The fact that there's peace in your life right now is of no comfort to you. But to the Christian, it's still a warning that, that this should be a rhythm of our life, a healthy rhythm where we actually have peace and we can breathe because we're not worried that there's going to be some sin that takes hold in our life or some patch of bareness that will persist. We've embraced the Spirit of God. We're actively seeking for Him to work in our lives. So when sin pops up, we deal with it. We come to the cross. We give it to Jesus. We know His arms are open. We know He's always filled with grace for us. And we delight in growing in these ways. I'm not sure what that looks like for you today. But the pattern is the same for all of us. So I'm going to pray that indeed Jesus would work in this way and that we would embrace it. We'd be open to it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I do pray for us. Uh, it's so easy, frankly, uh, Jesus, just to find comfort in the circumstances of our lives, in the fact that there's always someone worse than us, in the fact that things seem to be going well enough, and yet your word cuts through all of that. And I pray, Holy Spirit, indeed you would you would make us to feel that conviction. I pray we wouldn't be like this crowd before Jesus that is trying to deflect the convicting words that he has for us. I pray we would take them to heart. I pray we would actively uh, seek to grow fruit, not by our power, but by yours. I pray that we wouldn't become hard-hearted, Jesus, when you, when you dig at the roots of our life, but that we would see that it's necessary. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we repent, as we identify sin, as we turn to you again and again, that we would find great comfort for our soul. Just be at ease knowing that we are right with you and that we have life to look forward to, but also that we would seek to bear fruit. Lord, help us to see those areas where we just, we really need to grow and that your spirit is, is convicting us about it, prompting us, that your word is, is bringing the, the instruction and the nutrients we need and that we would delight in seeing all of those things grow, those spiritual fruit grow, so that you might receive glory and so that the people in our lives would be blessed, so that we'd actually be able to honor you and love people well. Help us in this, Jesus, for it is all by your strength that this happens. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.